Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Of course, if you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, then we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Here's a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering this week. First off, spotting DKA without a high sugar. Next, ECGs in the COVID era. After that, telling apart the culprits of meningitis. Then, high-flow nasal oxygen for intubations. And finally, coping with COVID. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the unparalleled Clay Smith. The first article for this week was titled, Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors and the Risk of Diabetic Ketoacidosis, a multi-center cohort study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. A hot topic, SGLT2 inhibitors are all the rage these days. And in fitting with the class name, the individual drugs are even harder to say. A few common ones might include canagliflozin, depagliflozin, and empagliflozin. But despite these being tongue twisters, these drugs have really outdone themselves, reducing cardiovascular, renal, and mortality outcomes in patients with diabetes type 2. It's not all sunshine, though. There have been case reports of euglycemic DKA associated with SGLT2 inhibitors, which is obviously kind of abnormal since a high glucose would normally be kind of a classic sign of DKA. This study looks into a large Canadian database of more than 3 million patients to find the risk of DKA in type 2 diabetics taking SGLT2 inhibitors, compared with those taking dipeptidyl peptase 4 inhibitors, like alloglyptin, lingliptin, and saxagliptin, among others. To develop the cohorts, they use propensity matching and time of exposure to each drug, with each group containing roughly 210,000 patients. They found that the incident rates of DKA was nearly three times higher with the SGLT2 inhibitors, increased to 2.03 per thousand person years from just 0.75, with a hazard ratio of 2.85. Granted, in the emergency medicine context, you are not ever likely to prescribe these medications, but people coming through your doors will surely be taking them. So be cautious of unwell-looking patients with this on their med list. Consider searching for DKA in patients with anion gap acidosis with only slightly elevated or even normal glucose levels in the context of a type 2 diabetic who is also taking SGLT2 inhibitors, because it might be playing a role. So in a spoonful, SGLT2 inhibitors were associated with a three-fold increased risk of DKA compared to DPP4 inhibitors. Next is a second article titled Giant T-Wave Inversions and Dyspnea in the Time of Coronavirus Pandemic out of the Journal of Circulation. So if it wasn't already apparent from other weeks, I really do like when we do ECG articles. I think they're cool. But anyways, COVID has changed a lot about the way that we practice medicine. It's on the differential for neurological complaints, cardiac failure, anything that looks like the common cold, honestly, and of course, coagulopathies as well. So here we have a case report of a young 21-year-old male with sarcoidosis who has had steroids tapered over the last two months and is now presenting with dyspnea on exertion and leg edema. Labs show a pro-BNP of 7,700 and a high-sensitive troponin of 24. Are you thinking about COVID? 
The ECG showed a right bundled branch block pattern, pronounced T-wave inversions in the early precordial leads and inferior leads, right axis deviation, and a prolonged QTC. All of that points chiefly to having significant right ventricular strain. So if you thought this could be from COVID, then perhaps you might be considering a PE. And of course, a PE should indeed be ruled out as soon as possible and a COVID swab sent. This patient didn't have anything to do with COVID though, and was negative on testing. This was a case of worsening pulmonary sarcoidosis resulting in pulmonary hypertension. And this highlights two things. First, keep COVID in mind, and that you should probably be ruling out PE in any patient with acute onset right ventricular strain. And second, it's still probably usually not going to be COVID, so keep the rest of the history close at hand. In a spoonful, continue to keep an open mind when it comes to reading ECGs. Form a differential for each abnormality, and then see how well they overlap. Now the third article titled Clinical Prediction Rule for Distinguishing Bacterial from Aseptic Meningitis out of the Journal of Pediatrics. The distinction between a bacterial meningitis and a viral meningitis is of course the source of much consternation. One is deadly and the other generally not so much. There have been risk scores in the past that have tried to help with the distinction, but they have to be very accurate because the risks involved in missing a bacterial meningitis can be catastrophic. Here we have the meningitis score for emergencies. How well does it fare? This was a retrospective derived and prospectively validated score to distinguish bacterial from viral meningitis in children 29 days to 17 years old out of 25 Spanish emergency departments. The derivation cohort found four weighted predictors, which they deemed best to make up the meningitis score for emergencies. These predictors were a serum procalcitonin greater than 1.2 nanograms per milliliter for three points, a serum CRP greater than 40 milligrams per liter for one point, a CSF absolute neutrophil count greater than 1,000 per microliter for one point, and CSF protein greater than 80 milligrams per deciliter for two points. Now then to actually use the score. So when applied to a cohort of 1,009 patients to measure diagnostic performance using a score of one or more points as positive, the sensitivity was comfortingly at 100%, with a specificity of 83%. That puts the positive predictive value at around 37, and perhaps more importantly, the negative predictive value at 100. From this cohort, no cases of bacterial meningitis were missed, but this still needs to go on to external validation before considering using it in practice. From this cohort, no cases of bacterial meningitis were missed, but of course this still needs external validation before we can consider using it in practice. In a spoonful, the meningitis score for emergencies seems to be accurate at predicting bacterial versus viral meningitis, but further prospective external validation is going to be needed. After that, we have the fourth article titled The Effectiveness of High-Flow Nasal Oxygen During the Intraoperative Period, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis at the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. It's your friend, high-flow nasal oxygen. And if it wasn't already going to be popular enough, then COVID certainly gave it a boost, as we realize how much non-invasive ventilation was a good idea for these patients. Literature has been a bit back and forth for using it for pre-oxygenation and for apneic oxygenation, though. This study attempted to focus on the use of high-flow nasal oxygen for pre-oxygenation before intubation. But of course, there's still that period between induction and tube placement when the patient is, of course, apneic and still on high-flow nasal oxygen, so the distinction is a little bit blurry. 
This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of four small RCTs using high-flow nasal oxygen for induction before intubation and four other RCTs for procedural sedation. The more interesting of those two is trials for intubation, so we'll focus on that. In the high-flow nasal oxygen group, using 40 to 70 liters per minute of flow, oxygen desaturation rates defined as an SpO2 less than 90 to 93 were much lower with an odds ratio of 0.06. That means that there was a 94% reduction in the odds of desaturation. That's pretty good. The catch to that though is that there are only two studies that measured this outcome, and the total patient count between them was only 90 patients. Yet despite that, the effect size was quite large. Even the upper limit of the 95% confidence interval of the odds ratio came to a reduction of 41% in desaturations, which is honestly still clinically relevant. Other findings were that the minimum oxygen saturation was 5% higher, and safe apnea time was 33 seconds longer for the high-flow nasal oxygen group compared with just conventional oxygenation. There were no changes in the levels of antihydal CO2 between the groups. Unfortunately, generalizability of this data to the emergency department isn't guaranteed, since all of these studies were performed in the operating room setting. But as far as I can tell, I don't imagine this being harmful. It's really probably worth giving it a try given how much this technique is increasing in ubiquity, and that this evidence was quite positive. In a spoonful, high-flow nasal oxygen, when compared to conventional oxygenation in the operating room, reduced desaturation rates, improved lowest oxygen saturation level, and prolonged safe apnea time. And finally, the last article, titled Mental Health Treatment for Frontline Clinicians During and After the Coronavirus Disease 2019 Pandemic, a plea to the medical community out of the annals of internal medicine. COVID has been the largest public health crisis that almost anyone living can remember. Completely upending how we function in our day-to-day -day lives, as well as adding stress, anxiety, and fear around being on the front lines as healthcare providers. Even without the added complexity of COVID, baseline risks for depression and anxiety were already high in healthcare workers. These authors comment that, and I quote, Sheer force of will cannot sustain us in the months ahead. So what can we do to get support? These authors offer several actions that we can take when facing this pandemic. First, practice self-care by taking time to eat, sleep, and rejuvenate. Lean on colleagues, coworkers, teammates, friends, and family for the support that you need. Don't let social distancing equal social isolation. Myself, I prefer to think of it just as physical distancing and not as social at all because we still very much need that social connection. You have to be on the lookout for warning signs in yourself. This could include substance abuse, sleep disturbances, hopelessness, and helplessness. And of course, don't ignore these same warning signs in your colleagues. Now, this is a key point, and it seems really simple, but it's not. If you're struggling, ask for help and try to ask for help early. Employee assistant programs can make a difference. One of the largest forces working against all of these suggestions is stigma. The bottom line though is that this can be life or death. For you but also for your patients since you can't provide the best care to them if you're depressed and battling suicidal thoughts. There is no shame in struggling and the authors point out that, again I quote, you are as vulnerable as everyone else to tragedies and stress. 
in a spoonful, it is okay to get support and to seek help for your own mental health. This was always true, but it's especially true now during this public health crisis. There is no shame in self-care. All right, guys, let's do a quick review of everything that we learned today. First, watch out for DKA in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. Just keep it in mind. Mostly these drugs will help, but sometimes you need to think about the worst case. After that, keep reading ECGs as always. Be thorough and integrate it with the history. Then from the third article, a new and potentially accurate score for predicting bacterial meningitis in children is the meningitis score for emergencies. Keep an eye out for the external validation study. Next from the fourth article, that pause between apnea induction and successful intubation can be a really scary one. Good pre-oxygenation is what helps us through it. Consider high-flow nasal oxygen to help with your pre-oxygenations. And finally, from the fifth article, the pandemic has affected each and every one of us. And many of us are struggling. Try to recognize the signs in yourself and don't ignore them in your colleagues. Seek out help. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. So we're helping you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.